Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. These have been dark, stressful days for our country. The pandemic has pushed the healthcare community to the brink of its capacity. Our fellow Americans are financially strained and anxiety-ridden. Now seems like the opportune time to explore the benefits of mindfulness. You're listening to Sound Practice, the podcast of the American Association for Physician Leadership. I'm your host, Mike Sakopoulos. On this episode, we will speak with Lori Cameron, a national expert on mindfulness. Let's begin. My guest today on Sound Practice is Lori Cameron. Uh, she is a TEDx speaker, leadership consultant, ICF certified executive coach, and author of The Mindful Day, Practical Ways to Find Focus, Calm, and Joy from Morning to Evening. She is a senior fellow at the Center for Advancement of Wellbeing at George Mason University, a senior mindfulness teacher at the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, and a guest professor of mindful leadership at the R.H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. Lori, thanks and welcome to Sound Practice. It's great to be here with you today, Mike. It is my pleasure. Why don't we start with a question that may be on some of our, our listeners' minds who, who may not know. Can you describe or define mindfulness? Oh, sure. I'd love to. You know, it's a word that we see on the cover of all kinds of magazines at the grocery checkout stand, but you know, it really brings up different things for different people. Um, we can think of mindfulness as simply present moment awareness or direct experience of your life right now. Those are very short and, and easy ways to describe it. Uh, a more official definition is the awareness that arises from paying attention on purpose in the present moment with curiosity, openness, and compassion. So mindfulness really involves three points of a triangle. If you were envisioning a triangle, you, would, you could think of intention on one point, attention on the other point, and attitude on the third. So it's about attention, but it's the way we're paying attention. We're paying attention with this a beginner's mind, a curiosity, an open-minded receptivity, which is very different than the way many of us are trained and educated and conditioned in the West to pay attention. We usually pay attention with more of a judgmental mind. If we pay attention to our mind, we find that we're often judging, you know, up to 20 times an hour. We mm -hmm. judge ourselves. We judge those we interact with. We judge situations. We judge the weather. You know, we make things as we make things right or we make things wrong. And that can have very limiting effects. So with mindfulness, we're not only training ourselves to be present and tuned in to what's happening on the inside, our thoughts, our feelings, emotions, 
physiological sensations, pains, um, a signal from the abdomen that maybe this person isn't trustworthy. So all of that, we're also paying attention to our surroundings, the environment and other people. So it's quite, it, it's simple and also quite complex. <laughs> I, I understood. So how did you become interested in the topic of mindfulness? Well, I was living in California uh, a little over 25 years ago, working for Accenture, the management consulting firm. And if you're familiar with that firm, it's a, it's a high pressure, high demand firm with very high standards of performance and we're very focused on client service and I was in a in a I was a I was a young manager leading a complex engagement a piece of this engagement that was pretty stressful and my client my main client counterpart was an engineer from Vietnam and she worked with me day by day she noticed all the stress I was under and noticed that it was, you know, impacting me. I was really starting to um, not feel that's that type of calm, clear confidence that comes when you're not experiencing a lot of stress or interpreting life as stressful. So she asked me one day if I'd heard of mindfulness. And I said, no, um, I'm from Maryland. We don't have that there. <laughs> of course, this is 25 years ago. And she actually taught me that I could learn to drop into a clear, calm, centered place on the inside, despite what chaos and turbulence and pressure was happening on the outside. And that's not anything I'd ever learned. And up to that point, I was a human performance, human development you know, expert. That was my field. But we never learned how to build skills and competencies really on the inside. We more learn tools and techniques and deliverables that we do kind of out there and, and to interpret what's happening around us as reality and kind of get stressed from that. So she taught me how to breathe as the first skill, as the first exercise in training my mind. And how long did it? take her to train you? Um, it That's just such an interesting question. I, I've never gotten that. She taught me in the first 15 minutes how to breathe mindfully, how to bring attention to the inhale and the exhale, to notice when my mind wanders and to just simply notice it and bring it back to the breath. I mean, that that's even just a couple of minutes. The key is in the practice. So practicing mindful breathing, which is a combination of two foundational skills, focused attention and open awareness or meta attention, the ability to know where my attention is, and then ultimately what my mind is doing. So those fundamental skills that come from mindful breathing are something that we learn when we do it over and over. And, uh, that's been, so I, you know, I've used support with that. I've, she created a drop-in mindful breathing. Um, she just booked a conference room on the corporate campus we were, we were working in. And I dropped in with her every Monday. I did it on my own. And for the last 25 years, I've been training with her teacher, the Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh, the peace activist um, and monk and author that um, 
was exiled from Vietnam and created a practice center in France. So I spent the last three decades training with the nuns and, um, and, and monks from that tradition. That is, that's fascinating. I want to get a little bit more into that, but first I think for our audience, as you know, we, uh, have a healthcare community base here and you do work with the healthcare community or as we speak today there are more than 460,000 Americans that have died of of COVID-19 the healthcare community is mentally physically and emotionally exhausted uh, by dealing with the pandemic what can the healthcare system do with their staff in these difficult days Yes, I, you know, the, the phrase that I'm hearing now is that healthcare workers are in a pandemic of burnout. So they're responding to this chronic long-term, um, very dis- distressing and depleting situation. And what I would hope is that the healthcare systems invest in building up the inner resources of the healthcare community. And that's the work that I do with, I'm working with three different um, healthcare systems right now. And we're focused on building the inner resources, which include both skills, very particular skills, mindsets, behaviors, and new habits. So there's a combination of things that we can do. The good news is, Uh, Without a doubt, the research is in. We have a lot of um, randomized control studies that show that well-being is a skill. It can be trained. And that's really the heart of what I do with uh, my company, Purpose Blue, is train in mindfulness-based well-being. And the way we do that is pull together the research and evidence-based practices from emotional intelligence, positive psychology, um, the underlying research and evidence from neuroscience and neurobiology. And then the mechanism that we use comes from contemplative traditions and practices like mindfulness. So mindfulness is the ability to pay attention to what's happening when it's happening. That's step one, is just to know what's going on with me right now. I'm stressed out. I just watched a patient die in the hallway. I've got to walk into this this next room where I know someone is right at the brink of, of life and death. And I'm noticing a tsunami of emotion in my body. That's a mindful moment to pause and notice what the direct experience is. So we can take that second pause, just that breath and, and bring attention to the breath calm and regulate the body, connect to how you wanna show up as you walk in that next patient room and then be able to do so. So we can build those competencies with practice. Well, working with physicians, you know what's coming next, right? It, what, what objection do you think that you're, we're, we're going to hear to, to mindfulness training? I assume that it's going to be time, right? We're going to hear, I'm I'm busy morning, noon, and night. I'm caring for critically ill patients. Uh, not uh, not here to to teach Jane Austen to college students. I, I am under high pressure, and I do not have time. How do you respond to that? Yeah, that's the number one objection in 
any field, in any industry. Um, but I think that the healthcare industry has the, you know, the greatest case for making that claim that they don't have time. Um, because minutes and seconds, you know, are a matter of life and death in some cases. And they don't have a lot of personal time and they need that to replenish. So that's exactly where mindfulness fits in. Mindfulness is a um, uh, an, an evidence-based best practice method of replenishing and renewing. So a few minutes of mindful breathing where we drop below the choppy waters and turbulence of the life that they're in. I love to use the metaphor of, of, of an ocean that these physicians and, and, and nurses and frontline workers are in just very turbulent, choppy, churning waters. And they, they stay in that all day, hours and hours and hours. And, and then they might come right home and not have anything left, right? It might be uh, a martini and, you know, a Netflix binge before they collapse in the bed, right? Because there's just no energy left. And what we know is that we can learn very short, I call them micro practices, very small, short, very effective practices that they weave throughout their day so that they're not adding a mindfulness class or hour or two hours at the end of an already exhausting day. They're weaving and integrating very strategic mind-body moves to not only shift their state in a moment, which is has has impacts on their own well-being as well as patient outcomes. So it's it, the ROI is is quite significant. But um, we're weaving micro practices, mindfulness practices into the day that they already have, and that is is really the, the heartbeat of the work I do. When National Geographic asked me to write the book, The Mindful Day. They wanted a, a science back book on mindfulness. Uh, their audience isn't known for, you know, incense and beads, right? Their audience in National Geographic are explorers. And we like to think of this book as, as supporting inner explorers, you know, what's happening on the inside. But they wanted a book for people that weren't going to go to the Himalayas or don't have time to add a weekly Monday night class, but that want to find how to integrate the benefits of mindfulness, which are cognitive, psychological, physical, emotional, they imp it impacts relationships, you know, well-being, to, to get those benefits in the existing life we already lead. So that's why I wrote the book. That's why I do the work that I do, because I believe that we need to create practices that are integrated and hooked into how we already live. Otherwise, we won't have sustainable behavior change and mindset change, and we won't get the benefits. So I hear you, and I'm I'm I agree with doctors and nurses that think I don't have time to add a chunk of time into my life, and I'm not I'm not here to do that. Sounds sounds very much like benefits can be had with with very little time invested. Is that? Is that um, I wouldn't say it that way. Um, I would say um, we can integrate 
very short practices, a minute or two, five minutes here, five minutes there. And if we practice it regularly, we get the benefit. So I don't want to say no little time and imply that one time you get the sustainable benefit change. So it's like exercise. I can go to the gym. I can exercise for 45 minutes. I can exercise for five minutes. But if I only do five minutes once, I'm going to feel good after that five minutes. I'm going to have more energy in the body. My, my mind's going to be clear. I have more oxygen flowing through. I might be more alert. But three days from now, I'm not going to have that benefit. So these mindfulness practices are like going to the mental gym. We engage in a set of meditations or small practices, but the key is to do them consistently. So I teach a variety of these, you know, a three breath reset, um, a three center check-in, checking in emotions, thoughts, and body, um, a shift to connection. We will want to activate empathy and compassion right on demand, say right before talking to a family where they just lost a loved one or right before giving some tough feedback to, to a colleague that was in the OR and made a really, um, you know, a high stakes mistake. So there are moments when it's really important that we drop in and activate empathy and compassion. These are, we can do that with these micro practices, but we need to do that consistently over time. And here's why, I just wanna mention this, that last year, there was a book published or maybe two years now called Altered States. And this book is a thick, heavy book for neuroscience geeks um, like me. And it, it is a compendium of all the research in mindfulness and meditation and compassion training that shows that, that yes, we can do a meditation or a compassion practice or a micro practice and shift our state in that moment. I can shift the state real time, but with practice over time, because of neuroplasticity, states become traits. We rewire new neural pathways in the brain. We create sustainable new ways of being. We change our default. So that's the, that's the promise of, the, of practicing every day is that we, be, we, we shift, we grow. We know that our, these, these minds and bodies are impermanent and they're changing. So that's the thing is we can shift from a momentary state to an ongoing set of traits that are more, we're more calm, we're more patient. We have increased empathy, increased compassion, more confident. So the consistency then is, is on a chronological basis as opposed to a response to on a basis of response to stress. Is that, is that fair? I mean, are you doing it consistently when you react to stress or are you doing it consistently X number of times of day to achieve the, uh, the, the benefits that you're describing? I have to tell you how much I appreciate your questions. They're so (laughs) fresh. They're really fresh. Um, that yeah. could be good or bad, Lord, yeah. but I'm going to take it in in the in the in the positive way in which it I was think so it was positive. No, I meant it like they're very different they're so off and the they're wall, very thoughtful. So I want to say that the answer to that either or question is yes. Um, we are doing one. We're doing consistent practice daily 
to build up muscles or skills or new mindsets. So the neuro neuroscientist Richard Davidson out of the Center for Healthy Minds at University, University of Wisconsin says um, that with repetition, with consistent practice, we are wittingly shaping our mind. So he says, we are shaping our minds every day, wittingly or unwittingly. I love that phrase he uses. And we now know what these, what the, you know, the science is in, the research is in that if I go to this mental gym every day consistently, if I get up in the morning, have a cup of coffee, walk the dog, and then sit in my living room chair and exercise my attention muscle, if I run and, you know, if I do a mindful breathing practice, I'm strengthening the circuitry between the PFC, the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala so that I am better able to respond instead of react when stress hits. So one, I'm going to the gym to build up my skills and create that almost that muscle memory. But to your second part, yes, I am shifting how I'm responding to stress when it happens. And what we're doing here is we're interrupting conditioning. We all have habituated patterns in how we react. And some of it is from our biology, our evolutionary biology as human beings. We've got a flight, flight or freeze response. We get triggered, we react. And part of it is our conditioning. We've modeled and learned from parents, school teachers, basketball coaches, and so on. So what we're doing with mindfulness in the moment, on the floor, in the hallway, on the OR, you know, wherever we might be, is we are noticing that reaction rising and then interrupting our habituated response in the moment and using a new response, a new skill, which might be pausing and breathing. It might be the stop practice, stopping, taking a breath, observing what's happening in the body, using inquiry, looking at the thoughts, the thoughts in the mind. What am I believing about this other doctor that's assisting or this patient or whatever might be going on? And then P is proceeding with a calm, clear, intentional next action. So that's the stop practice. So we're doing both. We're, we're building up our muscles and new way of being every day with discipline. And then we're, um, we're integrating these practices at point of need when they happen, which soon become the new habituated pattern. That's the good news. That, that is good news. Is my smartphone counterproductive when it comes to mindfulness? Your smartphone like anything is neutral. So I really believe that um, how we relate to alcohol, to shopping, to consumerism, to technology, to our phones, our laptops, and all the rest, our TVs, is a matter of choice. So mindfulness helps us pause and check in with ourselves. I teach a lot of um, classes and do keynotes on purpose, meaning, and alignment, which is about getting really clear about the life you want to have and then pausing. And then before your next action, just being intentional and deliberate about what you're doing. It, mindfulness is about being more conscious and so knowing what we're doing when we're doing it. Sometimes when I'm on my phone, I'm unconscious. I am you know, I just want to check something for a minute. And next thing you know, I hop over to Instagram and I'm 
strolling away and I'm not, and I, you know, minutes become 10 minutes, 15 minutes, right. And time is lost. So that's one way to relate to the phone and it's designed beautifully to capture my attention and hold it there. And it has a lot of data about me and it knows how to capture Laurie Cameron's attention and, and keep it. Um, but I'm also a person who's practicing pausing and checking in. So I um, have set up my phone to put the most tempting apps, you know, on the third screen. I, um, I have a little alarm that comes on if I've used uh, certain apps more than 30 minutes, a little flash comes on. And, um, and I, I know that I, I treasure a lot that's in my phone. I use the phone, I actually set up alerts that remind me to pause and practice. Um, sorry if that, you heard that bell. That's one of them. Um, they remind me no, to pause. It was pause perfectly and timed. It was I know it was, it was amazing. I would love to say I planned that, but I've got one in the morning. I have one that comes on at 12 noon and one that comes on at 3.50. And so I get kind of, I'm a creative, I'm a writer. I love to paint. I get really absorbed in the work I do and, and do lose track of time. So these little alerts are bells that kind of allow me to pause and check in and take a walk or do a 10 minute mindful breathing session. So in that case, my phone is my friend. Oh, I like that. And I think that you found good ways to use, use it as a, as a tool. Um, and I wanted to move beyond where we have been, where we've been talking about mindfulness as, as it relates to, to ourselves. But it seems to me that there are benefits of mindfulness that extend beyond the person practicing it maybe to coworkers or patients would also seem to benefit by interacting with someone who is uh, mindful. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the powerful things that we see in the research with mindfulness, which again is about pausing and paying attention to our direct experience, is that as we do so, as we track emotions that are rising in the body and emotions or physiological sensations. We might feel a, a, a fluttering in the stomach or heat in the cheeks or so on as, as anger or different emotions are arising. As we get better at that, that's associated with the, um, the insula in the brain. That same part of the brain is associated with empathy and compassion. So as we become more mindful, tracking and naming and identifying our own emotions as they're arising, we actually are exercising the same skills and competency and, and capacity to tune in and be attentive to the experience of other people, which is empathy. And the challenge is, is that we're, we're all born with the innate capacity for empathy. I like to tell people we come out of the box pre-wired for empathy. We're a tribal social species. We know how to resonate. And empathy has two parts. It's affective in the body. I feel in the body what you're experiencing and it's cognitive. I can imagine, I can understand what you might be experiencing. So two levels. The challenge is, is that empathy is blocked by a number of things. And I think that that is a key challenge in, in, in hospitals and caregiving environments is that when we are rushing through the day, when we are racing to the finish line, which ironically in this pandemic, there doesn't seem to be a finish line. 
But as we're racing to the finish line, we are not often paying attention. The, the Buddhist scholar Joan Halifax teaches, she works with a lot of healthcare organizations, and she teaches that empathy and compassion begin with the capacity to be attentive to the experience of others. So before we even get into empathy, care, and compassion, we have to be able to pay attention. When we started speaking at the beginning of the interview, you, you mentioned that you'd studied with a, a Zen master. And I'm very interested about that. How did, how did that come to be? What, what did you learn? Because you have to admit, this is not something that is in the normal experience of uh, the average uh, average person. So, so clue us in. How was it? Yeah, I just consider that one of the most fortunate times of my life that I that I was introduced to Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, I mentioned that the engineer that I worked with closely at this energy company was from Vietnam, and Thich Nhat Hanh who's still alive in his early 90s, is, is probably, other than the Dalai Lama, the most recognized spiritual teacher on the planet and, and the Pope, those three guys. And um, I'm so lucky that I got to start training with him over, you know, and continued over the last three decades. So he's from Vietnam and Cho Yoder, my client is from Vietnam. And it turned out she was a senior Dharma teacher. Dharma just means the universal truth or wisdom teaching. So she was in his circle of teachers and she moved to the United States and took a job as an engineer for an energy company. And I was a consultant and met her. So I got really lucky, or if you, depends on what theories you subscribe to, maybe that was synchronicity or serendipity, but I'm, I'm really lucky that I met her. And I think the other part was I was receptive to it. So um, I was raised by a very spiritual mother in the Christian tradition, and I went to church growing up three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, prayer meeting. And um, while I stepped away from some of the doctrine uh, from my religion growing up in in my er late high school, early college years, I kept the... um, attachment, you know, the appreciation of the rituals and practices of slowing down, of sitting in stillness, of reading um, spiritual literature, of prayer. Um, And so when I started to learn these um, contemplative practices and traditions that came from a whole different lineage, in many ways, they felt very familiar. They made sense to me. So they, they augmented that training I had as a child for my mother. And she was a great example. So that's really how it started. I was, I think I was open to it and I got really lucky meeting Cho Yoder. Interesting. You've worked with groups outside of, of healthcare. Are there certain mindfulness techniques, strategies that apply to individuals based upon profession or is it across the board do you start the same with every group or is it uh, dependent upon their activities and their professions 
The beautiful thing is, I think what's really powerful is that um, these strategies and techniques and sort of the order that I introduce them are universal. And as much as people like to, we all do this, it's our human nature because we are wired to have our in-group. And we believe that our group, whether it's our geography in the world, whether it's our culture, whether it's our gender, whether it's our job, we believe that it's very unique and our challenges and pressures are very unique. But actually we're much more, we share much more in our humanity than, than um, what separates us, than what, what, you know, than what's different. So I always begin with teaching people to calm and stabilize the mind. That's always where we begin. Because without a calm and stable mind, we can't start working with the advanced skills and competencies. So for example, if I don't have a calm and stable mind, I can't really start learning empathy and compassion practices. Cause I'm, you know, I'm a frenetic harried mess, right? I'm whipping around, multitasking. I've got four different, you know, if I'm a doctor, patient charts, um, in my tech device or under my arm, I'm, I'm, I've got a lot on my mind. My mind's racing. And, and until we calm and stabilize the mind, it's very difficult to tune in to what's happening on the inside, what emotions are here. What does my gut instinct tell me is the next best move for me to serve this patient? So that's always the first move. So whether, you know, I work with partners in law firms, I work with senior leaders at, at uh, consulting firms, Deloitte, KPMG, and others. Um, I work in healthcare. I teach in university. Um, it doesn't matter what kind of pressure we're under. We are human beings that have a fairly universal way of responding. And when we're under pressure, we contract. We get really tight in the body. We, our mind, actually our perspective narrows our ability to see possibility and different solutions and creative um, ways to solve problems, to think of different resources, we call that resourcing ourselves, is very limited. It's part of our fight, flight, or freeze response. So the first thing we do is calm and stabilize the mind and body. And we can do that even with just one breath. Or sometimes I'll teach, find your feet. If you're about to walk into a patient room, pause. I would say, take a deep breath, send that breath all the way through to the feet, feel your feet on the hospital floor, and then push that door open and walk through. So that moment of calming, stabilizing the mind and body, down-regulating the nervous system, it's like taking a shaken snow globe and putting it down for a moment letting thoughts, emotions, worries, concerns fall to the bottom. So then that, that, that um, caregiver can think clearly, can walk in with a calm centered presence, which instills confidence in the patient. They're able to listen to the patient. And we know that when a physician or a nurse is coming from a calm, confident place, it impacts the patient outcomes. We know that healing takes place. We resonate with people. And that used to you know, sound like new age woo woo, but now we've, we're able to measure that. 
So we, we create a field of energy. And so I teach physicians to put the oxygen mask on themselves first, like they teach us on the airplane, those things we used to fly around in, to put the oxygen mask on themselves, take a deep breath, calm and center the body, clear the mind, and then walk into that room. And it doesn't matter really what your profession is. That's the name of the game. Well, it sounds incredibly beneficial, both to the practitioner and to those around him or her. My guest has been Lori Cameron. Thank you so much for taking time to be on Sound Practice. It's been so great to be here. And I really invite your uh, community of listeners to begin a mindfulness or meditation practice if they haven't. So I'd really like them to experiment with it just for 30 days, be a scientist and a subject and say, you know, I don't know, let me see for myself and find a quiet place, a regular spot to begin, try five or 10 minutes of mindful breathing meditation. And it's almost like tuning an instrument before you're going to go play in the orchestra and just cultivating that deeper capacity to access calm no matter what's happening and see thoughts and pause in the day and shift how they're showing up. And uh, they can find me on Insight Timer. That's an app that is free. There's 18 million, million subscribers of Insight Timer. And I'm on there with almost 20 meditations that are also free. So meditations to calm and center the mind, to practice self-compassion, to cultivate more empathy and compassion, uh, to use self-inquiry, to fall asleep easier at night. They can access all of those. They just search for Laurie J. Cameron. Well, in fact, we'll make it easier. We'll put it in the show notes to this episode so people can find you. Thanks right. again for your time. This has been very helpful. Great. Great to be here. I admit to originally not being very excited about the topic of mindfulness. Before my interview with Lori Cameron, I thought mindfulness was some pseudoscience feel-good nonsense. Ladies and gentlemen, I was wrong. I hope that you also learned something about mindfulness from Lori Cameron. Thank you to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. Bada bing, bada You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Robin, Red Book of Power.